Well, join me in the book of Revelation chapter 3. We get to complete our study of the seven churches of Asia Minor in uh, Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. Let me just remind you, we're wrapping up this series today. So we've looked at all seven churches. The year is AD 95. Uh, the apostle John is the last living apostle. He's on an island about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey, Patmos. It's a uh, colony. It's a prison penal colony. Um, it's harsh duty. And on a particular Sunday morning, he turns around. He hears a noise. Remember chapter one? He hears a noise. He turns around, and it's Jesus. And he says, I need you to write the last book of the Bible. And in specific, you're going to write these things down. And the first thing he does after chapter one is he writes seven unique letters to seven specific churches, seven actual churches in Asia Minor that worked counterclockwise in a in a circle, and they were to be read for their church and then circulated. And the reason you have them is because they're in the canon of Scripture as well. And so we're reading them today. And what they do is they teach you what to do as a church and what not to do as a church. And so there's tons of uh, content here and things, especially when you're engaged in church planting or replanting. There's things that we want to learn, things to avoid, some landmines, and then there's some things we need to grow in. And we need to get better at, right? And so that's the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in these seven specific churches. Only two of them, only two of them did not have a condemnation. We looked at one last week with Philadelphia. Didn't have anything bad to say about them, but only two of the seven. Most of them had a lot of criticism from Jesus. And the worst church is the one we're looking at this morning. It's the church of Laodicea. The worst of seven is the church of Laodicea. And I'm going to entitle this topic this morning or this letter, The Church on the Fence. The Church on the Fence. And that's not a good place to be, by the way, if you're wondering. So let's read the text and let's work our way through this text. And let's ask God, what does he want us to, to learn from the church of Laodicea? Remember, these are written as mirrors for us in the 21st century to kind of look at and say, hey, what do we need to edit? What do we need to change in our own church, in our own lives here as we look at this? So the message or the letter to the church of Laodicea. Let me read it for us. You follow along, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the angel, or as we learned in chapter one, pastor of the church of Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator or beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, <clears throat> that you are, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you are either cold or hot. So because that you are lukewarm, straddling the fence, and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you or spit you. It's the word for vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say this, I'm rich. We've become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Why, I advise you to buy from me gold that really is refined by fire so that you may become really rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, this, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And this eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here's the transition. Those whom I love... I will reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And like all the letters, ends the same way with the salutation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up and repent. This is the church of Laodicea. This is the church on the fence. We're dealing with, if you wanted to name the sin, let's call it what it is. If you're going to name the sin, it's the sin of lukewarmness. Okay? A sin of mediocrity. And um, we're going to learn from the church of Laodicea how to avoid this particular sin. Again, this church is the worst yet. What they're doing as a church is going through the motions. So they look spiritual on the outside, and they're going through all the right steps. They're even precise in how they're doing church. So they're, they're dialed in. They're spot on. They're dotting their I's, crossing their T's. But they're going through the motions. And it's always a caution to us that busyness um, and superficiality can be easily thought of as spiritual. Because you're busy and you're doing all these things, it doesn't mean you're being or living in Christ, right? It doesn't mean you're flourishing in your relationship to Christ. And so busyness is often confused with with spirituality. And so it's a dangerous thing, and you have to sort through all that. That's what's going on in this church. They're busy. They're dialed in. They remind me of the church of Ephesus, where, whereby, you know, he said, look, you're, you're, you're doing so well in these areas, but you have this one thing against you that you've left your first love, right? So they have all these great programs, all these great things going on, but they have this debilitating sin of having left their first love. So in the same way, the church of Laodicea has a lot going on for it. Uh, it, is a, it is a great town. It's a great city. They're flourishing as a city. But they're posers in their spiritual walk. They're posers in their Christian life. And the fruit of that is their church is on the fence. They've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And they're trying to straddle the fence. And it's not a, a, a good place to be. And so, therefore, the letters written from Jesus to them to awaken them out of their mediocrity. Now, like with every church that we've looked at in every letter, we've studied the city first. This one in particular is absolutely important. You pay attention to the kind of the distinctives of this city, Laodicea, because he's going to use their strengths and point out their weakness by their very strengths. It's an interesting city. Um, it's an actually an amazing, an amazing city. It's about 40 miles um, from Philadelphia, which we studied last week. It's a very influential city. A lot of entrepreneurial activity going on, which we'll see in one second here as we look at the text. Um, it's the key city um, in, the, in the Lycus Valley. So it's the kind of capital city in the Lycus Valley. It's a part of a, a, a tri-city. So you've got um, Colossae and you've got Heropolis and you've got um, Laodicea, and they kind of make up this tri-city. And uh, it was established about 200 B.C. by Antiochus II, and he named it after his wife. His wife ultimately poisoned him, and he died. But he did name this city after his wife, Laodicea, and he called the city Laodicea. Now, here's the deal. They had three primary industries in this city of Laodicea. 
And all three, Jesus is going to bring up and point out that their church is a reflection of these industries. First industry, the banking industry. They were like a mini Fort Knox. Uh, they were a very wealthy and influential uh, city, and they had tons of gold. And people retired in Laodicea. It's like the Naples of, of Florida. People just kind of flock there and, and, and group up there in, in Laodicea. To give you an example of how wealthy they were, in A.D. 60, so they were founded in 200 B.C., in A.D. 60, there was an earthquake that leveled the city. They took no stimulus from Rome at all, and they rebuilt the entire city themselves. They were a very influential city and kind of uh, the Cayman Islands of, of the Lycus Valley there in Laodicea. So that's very important. They were wealthy. It's going to come into play in a second. Second, they had the fashion industry. There was swagger um, in Laodicea. Uh, they, the city full of swaggers, like a little Italy there. Um, they were very fascist conscious. They were kind of the GQ of Asia Minor. And the reason being is they designed or developed this shiny black wool. And uh, it became very popular for, for tunics and dresses and, and, and uh, scarves, etc. And so it was a marker of influence and wealth, kind of a Tiffany's expression. When you see someone who has Tiffany's on, you know, they drop some serious coin and this black wool, when used and worn, kind of developed and, and people thought, well, man, this, these people have some cash. And so it created this eloquence about the city. And so they were known to be kind of a fashion city. And the third thing was medical, the medical industry. Um, they had uh, broken the code in ophthalmology. And that's why you see him mention this eye salve. They had designed an eye salve that basically treated things like pink eye, things that we would... See, it's kind of pretty simple to take care of now, and we have modern medicine for that, but think of first century. So they uh, had things like pink eye and glaucoma, and they came up in their studies and their research with this, this eye salve that was very valuable and very important as it uh, helped people clear their sight and people could see. And, and so people would, would come to, like a Mayo Clinic, they'd come to Laodicea. So they were like a little Fort Knox, a little Italy, Right, and a little Bethesda, Maryland, right? All, all kind of in one. Now, we always, with all of our cities, try to parallel them to something in the United States. The best I could come up with is, is Laodicea is a little bit like Dallas, you know, got big hair. When you came into Laodicea, because they're so influential, everything's big in Laodicea. You know, they would have borrowed the Texas theme, right? And so it's kind of like a Dallas where you have enough swagger, although country swagger, and you have enough medical and you have enough wealth. As a matter of fact, last time we did a trip to Dallas, it was during the uh, kind of 2008, 2009 recession. And you would have thought they didn't even know there was a recession going on in the U.S. It didn't even affect Dallas. They're building, there's cranes. I mean, they're just going for broke. This is Laodicea. This is, this is their strength. They're a very influential, strategically placed, significant city, except for one thing. They had one weakness. They had an Achilles heel. And that Achilles heel was water. They did not have a good water source. Their water was terrible. So follow me because this is going to be the key to interpreting this text. So they didn't have good water. So they were brilliant, right? They were good with entrepreneurship. So they thought, okay, let's bring in the water. So north of them, picture the triangle, remember the tri-cities. North of them is Heropolis. And Heropolis 
was known for these amazing hot springs. I mean, boiling hot, 208 degree hot springs. So they thought, let's build some, some stone aqueducts. And they brought water in from seven miles north from Heropolis, right? And then the other tri-city was Colossae. And Colossae was known for these cold, icy cold aqueduct springs that came out of Colossae. And so they thought, okay, let's partner with Heropolis and bring water down. And then we'll, from the west, we'll bring it east from Colossae. So think about this. Through these underground water ducts, they bring hot water seven miles, and they bring cold water about eight miles. By the time it reaches Laodicea, what do you have? Lukewarm water. He's basically saying your church is like the water. And they would, that, would have, that would have been a complete gut shot. It would have nailed them. I mean, they would have gone, what? You kidding me? Because they hated their water. It's like anything lukewarm, right? Hot coffee is good if it's hot. It's great if it's cold. But if I hand you a cup of lukewarm coffee, you go, oh, that is bitter sitting all day in the park. And you just go, wow, that's nasty, right? That was their water. Plus, it wasn't clean. It had all the sediment from traveling and the aqueducts to get there. So it had all these particles in it. And it was just, honestly, it tasted bad. Had a little hint of sulfur in it, you know, kind of that nasty water taste. So what he's about to tell them, Jesus is writing a letter to the church and saying, you know, your church's spiritual life is actually like your water. And that would have like immediately stunned them. So when you think, what is he talking about? Because you're lukewarm, he's talking about their water system. He's talking about their Achilles heel, how they received their water. And it parallels the significant weakness of the city is the significant weakness of this particular church. And it was distasteful. So much so, it makes God sick. So when we study this passage, we need to learn what makes God nauseous. What makes him sick? Because the church of Laodicea had not one good thing. He didn't have one good thing to say about this church. And he had a lot of things to say that what they were doing was making God nauseous. It was like their water system. It was lukewarm. Now, the church itself, so we move from the city to the church and then to the text, right? The church itself was established by Epaphras. You know, Epaphras, as from Colossians, he uh, was, was the leader there, um, uh, there in Colossae, in Colossians 1 7. There's a lost letter that didn't make it in the canon that Colossians 4.17 mentions about. There was the letter to Laodicea. So there was a letter written by the Apostle Paul but got lost in transition and obviously wasn't inspired and didn't make it into the canon itself. But the, there's a reference um, about this lost letter in Colossians 4.16. The church in Laodicea produced Philemon. So that was one of the leaders that came out of this particular church um, in the first century. And, um, and in A.D. 95, they were rich materially, but spiritually bankrupt. Nominal, nominalism had taken hold, and they'd become lukewarm. And now they're the, the worst possible condition, and they're the worst possible church of the seven we've looked at in modern Turkey. And they obviously repented quite a bit because they had a pretty good run all the way to about 380, 385. And then they kind of drop off. So up to about 380, 385, there was a strong gospel witness in there. They were producing spiritual leaders on a, on a regular basis, and God was calling uh, men out of, out of their life. 
So remember Sardis, they had the reputation that they were alive but dead. Here, they have the reputation of activity, but they're going through the motions. And um, in Laodicea, they, you know, they're going backwards. Uh, they're, they're not making headway spiritually, um, not one word of, of accommodation to them. And I'm telling you, when they would have heard this, when this knock on the door and Epaphras, the pastor of the church, would have received this letter from Jesus himself, it would have hurt. It, it would have stung. They're going to need, right? They're going to need to know that this was lit, written by Jesus himself. Look at, verse, look at verse 14. They needed to know three things in order to receive this kind of gut shot, right? He says, to the pastor of the church of Laodicea, the amen is writing it. The faithful and true witness is writing it. And the originator of the creation of God says this. First, he says the amen. This is a title for Jesus Christ. With all letters, he pulls something out of the grand vision of chapter 1 and imports it into the individual letters to reference that he has the right, the, the, that he knows them and he has the right to speak into their lives. So this isn't me, another sinner, writing a letter to another church saying, hey, I think you ought to grow up in the following categories. This is King Jesus, the head of the church, writing to his churches that he founded there in Asia Minor. And he's writing to them and he wants them to know he has the authority. And he also wants them to know, verse 15, I know, Oida, I have intimate knowledge of what's going on there in Laodicea. So this isn't them able to dismiss this letter they have to receive it because it comes from the amen. It's a title for God. They're saying Jesus is the fulfillment of God. He is Christ. He is the Christ. He is incarnate. He is God. This is God writing a letter as head of the church to this church in Laodicea. And then he says to the faithful, I am the faithful and true witness. Absolutely true. Dead on, spot on. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't expand. He doesn't subinterpret. He's dead on. He's spot on with them. He says, I am consistent, truthful, and accurate. I am the amen, and I am faithful and true in my assessment. I am spot on. So you have to sit up and pay attention because this is coming from the amen. Jesus is God, the senior pastor of this church and the founder of the church. And then he says, third, he says, I am the RK, the originator or the beginning of creation. The reason why this one's in there, um, there were <clears throat> two churches that struggled with the same kind of influence, but Colossae for sure struggled with it. So Colossae is about west eight miles. And as you know anything about Colossians chapter one, when Paul writes that, he's talking about Christ being the firstborn and the creator and all that. Why? Because they had this cult group, this false teachers who were saying he was a created being. He wasn't God. Jesus was not God. We still have this today, by the way. He wasn't God. He was created. He was the first one created. Thus, he can't be God. And so the reason why this archaic word is used here, it's talking about he is the originator. He is the creator. He was there at creation, right? He's not the first created being. He is the creator, the preeminent creator. And so he's addressing kind of even this local heresy that could have been drawing them away, could have been tempting them. So he says, no, I'm the amen. I'm God. I'm the faithful and true witness. What I'm about to tell you is dead on, spot on. 
And he said, I'm, I, was, I was at creation itself. I am the creator. I am the originator. Creator, creation came from me. All things were created by him and Colossians 1 for him, right? So he's, he's locking everything down. And he says, basically, I have the right to speak to you. Look what he says. I know your deeds. That you're cold, you're neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. And what I want to do is walk through and provide for us kind of three qualities that we should avoid, right? Three attributes, bad attributes that we should avoid or that make Jesus sick. If we adopt any of these three, we're going to put ourselves in a vulnerable place. It's all going to be, all going to come down, crash and burn. It's going to make Jesus nauseous. And we should avoid these like the plague, right? Like the norovirus. So we talk about being sick. We should avoid them like the norovirus that took hold of us a couple years back and, and make sure that we get out of the way of these things. So we need to, to, to grapple with these things. So the first one I want to call your attention to is found in verses 15 and 16. It's this. We need to be careful that we don't lack self-awareness. We need to be careful that our church, like their church, lacks self-awareness. We need to come to grips about where we are and who we are. He says, I know with perfect intelligence, and then he gives them an assessment here. He wants to sober them up. They're stuck in their mediocrity. They're not moving off the dime. And so he says, you spiritually are neither cold nor hot. What is he talking about? Cold is apathetic, dead, zero interest in spiritual things, possibly op openly rejecting Christ, kind of a smug self-sufficiency. I don't need Christ in my life. I can, I'll take some religion, that good old time religion, but I don't need Christ. He says, you're neither cold, dead, or hot on fire for Christ. It's kind of obvious. Fuego, zealous. It's a reference to zeal and passion. Like Luke 24, 32, on the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples are there, the text says their hearts burned within them, same word, kind of on fire for the Lord. He said, you're not cold and you're not hot. You're neither. You're not living on mission. You're just there. Nominalism has plagued you, and you're neither cold nor hot, and that is a huge response problem. You're not hungry for spiritual things. You're you're not on fire for Christ. Jesus says you're you're neither. And then the next thing he says causes interpretive challenges, right? Look what he says. I wish that you were cold or hot. Wow. So lukewarm's out. We know he's about to condemn lukewarmness. So we'll deal with that in a second. So he says, I wish that you were either on fire for the Lord. I think that's easy to understand. He wants us to be on fire for the Lord. That's normal Christianity. That's what Christianity looks like. It's always being on fire and having a hunger for spiritual things. That's why I read 2 Peter, constantly adding to your faith, perseverance, adding, adding, constantly growing, progressive sanctification, getting more and more like Christ, right? But they were so satisfied and so comfortable. He says, I wish that you were either cold or hot. It's almost like he has this holy impatience for them. He says, I wish you were cold. What is he talking about? 
Well, you see, the state of lukewarmness, which they're in, is worse than coldness. You see, if you're cold and you're spiritually dead, it's easier to resurrect you from a position of coldness than to take you from lukewarmness back to identity and, and, and to coldness and then convince you of your need for Christ. When you're self-sufficient and you lack self-awareness, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So the state of lukewarmness is actually worse than coldness. But this jams up all kinds of interpreters, and they, they try to wrestle. What does he mean? Does he, really, does he really want them to be unbelievers or are normal believers? And the answer is yes. He'd rather have you totally in unbelief where the gospel can penetrate your heart by the wooing of the spirit, separating the wheat from the chaff, than to be in a state of lukewarmness. Let me give you an example of a state of lukewarmness. Judas, who hangs out with Jesus for three and a half years, who is at the table of leadership, who, who gets all the content, who sees everything, and then is in a state of lukewarmness. He's around the Christianity. He's in the environment of Christianity. He's not a Christian. There are many people who have joined the church but have never been joined to Christ. That is the worst possible case. That's a lukewarm person. That's a lukewarm believer. He'd rather you be cold and on the outside and we can witness to you and share the gospel with you or be on fire. But this lukewarmness business is, is not good. It's not good. Jesus would rather them know of their lostness and know of their depravity than to think you're a Christian. Remember Matthew 7, 21? Many in the last days will say unto me, did I not do this and did I not do this and... Did I not heal people? Did I not uh, respond? And he says, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the scariest place to be, is this place of lukewarmness where you think you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian. It'd be better off for you to be cold and outside than to think you're okay with Jesus and just give it a thumbs up, but you really never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You've never fallen on the mercies of Christ. You've never repented of your sin. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. See, they're going through the motions. They've got some good deeds. They're doing some good things, but they're not doing it out of a Christ-honoring motivation. And they're doing it out of their lukewarmness. Instead, verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit the whole lot of you out of my mouth. It means to projectile. It's projectile vomit, not to be gross. But that's what he's talking about. You're, you make me so nauseous. In your lukewarm state, this is what makes God sick. This is what we should learn. We don't want to ever get to this place. We don't want to be lukewarm Christians. We don't want to be half in and half out. We don't want to be the church on the fence in Bardstown. We, we don't want to be that. And I'm telling you, you can look all around our state and other states, and you'll find a ton of churches who are lukewarm in the West. I think the church of Laodicea best parallels the church in the West. Because you're going to see some of the attributes of their wealth and their self-sufficiency and everything going on. And, and they're not trusting Christ. And this is kind of a, they're plagued with carnality, kind of a smug self-righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is they lack tremendous self-awareness. So, we need to be careful of our self-awareness. We need to always be examining ourselves, being honest where we're at, and not lack self-awareness. We don't need one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We need to be all in. If you're going to plant a church in Barcelona, you're all in. That's the only place to be. Second, 
quality that we need to be careful of is they were full of their own self-justification. So they lacked self-awareness, but they were filled to the brim with self-justification. Look at it. Verse 17, look at their response. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that actually you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Remember what I said about the city? A little Fort Knox. They got, they got tons of wealth. They rebuilt. They, can, they have a pen. We rebuilt in AD 60 our city without anyone's help. They were, they were colonized and part of the Roman Empire. They were a free city, so they could uh, lead as they, they, they wanted to, but they were still part of the Roman Empire and could have got stimulus, could have got help from the government, and they chose not to. That's how wealthy were. they were. They were basically saying, look, we are self-sufficient. We don't need help from the outside world. And what that translated is they don't need help from God. They weren't dependent on Christ. They weren't dependent on the, the senior pastor of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has, God has made us wealthy. We, we don't need a deacon's fund. We don't need any support from the church. We don't need any handouts. And what that translated to is we don't need Jesus. They were self-sufficient. We are of no burden. Of all the seven churches in Asia Minor, a lot of them had needs. They're needy churches on that route. And as those letters were circulated, we, we're not one of those. We, we don't need anybody's help. It's a strong reminder to us, though, that you can have everything yet have nothing. You can have everything on the outside. You can look pretty and look beautiful on the outside and be a wreck on the inside. And that's what's going on. Later see it. They're straddling it. They're thinking, you know, self-justification. We have our act together. I mean, we've got, we've got swagger in the fashion industry. We're, we're killing it in the medical industry, and we're killing it in the banking industry. Jesus, you go worry about Philadelphia or maybe Ephesus because they're all weirded out on their love issue. You just go work with somebody else, right? And so they become independent and, and self-sufficient, and they self-justify themselves that they're okay with God because they're basically saying God's blessed us, God's made us this way, and Jesus steps in with a letter and pierces all of it and goes right for the heart and says, no, no, you're, you're actually all mess. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. And you do not know that you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see how that parallels? Isn't that awesome? You're wretched. See, they, they thought they were, they were happy materially. He says, actually, you're a wretch. He says, you're poor, but we're for it not. No, you're actually poor. What does he say next? Blind. They have the eye salve that heals blindness. And, and, and ophthalmologically, they are caring for people's eyes. And he says, no, you're blind. And, but we got this black wool. We got these sweet clothes. And he says, no, you're naked. I mean, you talk about, it's, that's a haymaker of a shot, Adam. I mean, that is a swinging for the fence. I mean, he hit him on every possible front. You think you're rich materially, but you're broken spiritually. This is what he's trying to say. He dismantles their argument. He redefines wealth for them. And then he counsels them. I love the counsel. It's just the opposite. Look at verse 18. I advise you. This is the amen, the son of God. Jesus says, I advise you then that you'd stop worrying about how much cash you have in the bank and buy from me gold, real gold, 
that's been refined by spiritual fire so that you become spiritually rich. That's one. Second, you get white garments, not this black wool that you're boasting about, but you get white garments. And another church was brought up. Remember, that was a reward for their faithfulness is they'd get white garments, purity, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, right? That you put on humility. That's the only garment that doesn't go out of style is humility. It's why Peter said, clothe yourself with humility, and I salve, again, pokes them in the eye. I salve to anoint your eyes so that you'll really see spiritually. So don't trust in your money. Don't trust in your swagger and clothes. And don't trust in your entrepreneurial I salve that has helped people physically. All these things you need to buy, you need to own, are in the spiritual realm, in the metaphysical realm, not in the physical realm. Stop it. You need to buy the gold of the gospel, the purity of the, the white garments, not your fancy black tuxedos, but you need his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, to cover your sin and to cover the shame of your sin and your self-justification. You see, Christ's garments never go out of style. And you need to anoint your eyes to see. You need to spiritually see. You need spiritual eyes to help. You need divine illumination. You need Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law and from your book, right? So that you really see your need. I think it's just a place to pause and to ask ourselves, do we self-justify ourselves? Do we do self-justification? Do we say, oh, but I've got this and I've got this and I've got this, but yet... We've got this major flaw, then Achilles heel over here, or we, we're precise and we got everything going, but we leave our first love. Lukewarmness is not ever commended, and they are in a horrible place. Not one word of encouragement he gives to them. He says, this is a problem. This is a huge problem that you try to straddle the fence, that you, you think you can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. That's not the kind of people that are blessed by Christ. That's not the kind of people that plant churches. What a shame on them. To look so good on the outside, but be so miserable on the inside. It reminds me of a leadership quote that I stumbled on a while back that so many people and spend their life climbing the ladder of success to only realize they're on the wrong building. They get to the top and they summit and they're on the wrong building. This is what Jesus is saying to Laodicea. You are killing it in all these areas in your city, but you're on the wrong building. Third, third area that we need to avoid, third quality that we need to avoid is being full of self-sufficiency. Being full of self-sufficiency. Verses 19 to 22. Boy, did they lack the spiritual disciplines. They, they were gonna, they were gonna manhandle this thing. And look what he tells them to do in verse 19. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Now, some people try to translate this as for all seven churches, so they'd cut off the letter at verse 18. Uh, it doesn't fit. I mean, it would, it would not fit the pattern. He always ends his letters with some recommendations and reasons why you ought to be zealous to repent and reasons why you ought to be on fire 
for the Lord, right? So we've gone through the, the cause. We've, we've seen his counsel. Here are the, the consequences. If we don't, there are consequences. And if we do, there are consequences. So he's trying to motivate us, you know, to take action now. There's some, it's almost like you see in verse 19, there's some urgency. It's like a call to commitment. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Obviously, there's a group of believers there, right? You don't discipline the neighbor's kids. You discipline your own kids. He says, those whom I love. Jesus disciplines his children. Now, you can discipline without love, but you can't love without discipline. And he's going to discipline because he actually loves them. They're in the family of God, Hebrews chapter 12. They're in but they're straddling, and he's trying to awaken them. He says, those whom I love, I'm going to reprove, and I'm going to discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That is the call. That is the spirit and heart of church planners. Zeal and constant repentance. Because we are imperfectly living out the Christian life. We're always in need of repentance. We're always in need of a little bit more zeal, some spiritual zeal. And the urgency here, we're always in need of this. You see, the fruit of lukewarmness is lethargy or mediocrity. We just go through the motions and we just keep it going. You know, keep the lights on kind of thing. They needed to declare and move away from their self-sufficiency. And they needed to move into spiritual bankruptcy, which Matthew 5, 3 talks about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They needed to embrace this rebuke with gusto. They needed to hear clearly what makes Jesus sick. And what makes him sick is lukewarmness. He said, I'd rather you be cold in your unbelief or on fire for the Lord. But this middle ground, this business of going through the motions, we don't ever want to get there. We don't ever want to do that. He chastens, good news, he chastens who he loves. It's, 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 it's really fruit of your own chastening, right? If you're being chastened by the Lord personally, it's because he loves you. If you don't ever get chastened by the Lord, you've got to wonder if you're one of his children, right? And they reverse it out. Like, wow, if I can get away with all this sin, then I must be, you know, that you should be concerned about that. This lines up with his holy character. We're called to repentance. He wants a 180. He wants a different way of thinking, a different way of living. And he doesn't want, you to li- he doesn't want them to live like their city Wealthy and, and self-sufficient and self-justifying and, un, and totally unaware of what's going on. He wants them to repent, to turn 180 and turn to Christ. It's a call to holy zeal. It's to change out one value system for another value system. It's to change out mediocrity for, for living a passionate Christian life. And he provides them a beautiful invitation. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What a beautiful invitation. He pleads with the church. He's on the outside of their mediocrity and their lethargy and their lameness, right? And their lukewarmness. He's on the outside and he pleads with them, let me on the inside. Isn't it an odd sight there in the text that he's on the outside trying to get in? To the very church that he established, that he's the head of. If they will respond in repentance, the commensurate promise will follow. Verse 21, he who overcomes, 
I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father. The authority to reign with Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To be overcomers, right? Is to, is to refuse to be lukewarm. Is to resist lethargy and to resist mediocrity. Life is too short for us as a church to be lukewarm. And so this letter is given to the church of Laodicea to sober them up, to shock them, to use the things that make the city great. He parallels and says, listen, everything that the city's great with, it's killing the church. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You've got to sell out. You've got to get away and move away from lukewarmness. And so life is too short for lukewarmness. And he gives this universal summons again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question is this morning, are you listening? Are you hearing? Stay away from lukewarmness. You'll put yourself in a spiritually dangerous place when you're lukewarm, when you've lost your light and your fire and your red-hot devotion to Christ and you exchange it for something other than that, you're going to find yourself all jammed up and in a dangerous place. As a church, as a corporate body, we can find ourselves in a very dangerous place. And so this letter was written to, to caution us to not be, to be fully self-aware, to not deploy self-justification and not to be self-sufficient, but to be regularly in constant repentance, responding to the discipline of the Lord, having warm hearts to the Lord, having soft hearts, pliable hearts, caring about others, all these things that make up a healthy, vibrant church. We don't want to be self-reliant. We have to be reliant on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, it's a privilege to to study these seven letters. And we've learned a ton from these seven churches. Things we ought to avoid and things we ought to embrace. And even in our avoidance, like this church of Laodicea, we learn so much. We learn that lukewarmness makes you sick, makes you nauseous, that you would rather have us cold and or hot than, than lukewarm. And I pray that you would 